Hey, hey, my furry friends. All right, back again for part four of Spinoza's Ethics. Spinoza, Spinoza. If you've just stumbled on this, I don't know what you're doing. Go and check out parts one through three first and then come back here. If you have been listening the whole time, if you don't, of course, you know, uh, you know, you can follow me in other places. Links for all such things in the description. Don't want to waste your time with too much of that stuff. You can find me on TikTok. I guess that's my newest social media foray. But let's jump into part four of Spinoza's Ethics, which is the penultimate part, or in other words, the part before the last part. So part four titled of human bondage or the strength of the emotion. So if you'd remember from the last part, we discussed or Spinoza discussed the way that the emotions have to be taken seriously because, you know, we live with them. They're part of us. They're part of our lives. Here he's going to discuss when he refers to human bondage, he's referring to the ways in which certain emotions can restrain us and inhibit our capacity for action, to act, which is for him uh, quite bad. And that is to live not according to God or nature's will, but instead to uh, fall prey to... I, you know, I don't actually know what it would be falling prey to. It's interesting because it's all of nature. We're all of nature. Nothing exists outside of nature. Yet there are ways we can act that is not in accordance with nature. But I'll leave that to you. Tell me what you think. So as I said, bondage here refers to when someone is controlled by their emotions. So before proceeding, it is important to understand perfection and imperfection for Spinoza. So for uh, like the... <laughs> In the case of perfection, it is a completed thing or idea, whereas an imperfection is an incom incomplete thing or incomplete idea. So, for example, a finished house is perfect. But as we spoke about in one of the previous episodes here, probably part one, there could be a perfect idea of a house, like an architect's construction of a house. It just hasn't been built yet. It's still perfect, but it hasn't, like, come into perfection in the real world. Now, as humans, we tend to apply this logic to everything, where we say that something is good if it's been completed or has some kind of purpose. We always try to look for things having purpose. We, we are desperate. We desperately search for things that have purpose. And one of the ways that we think about that is in terms of things having an end. That is, their purpose being guided by their final end, the, the purpose that they, that they exist for. But Spinoza, and this is really interesting to me, if we consider the German idealists that would come after Spinoza, where Spinoza is not prepared to say that anything in nature is an end in itself or has an end in itself. Instead, we must be aware of the fact for Spinoza that we are all part of nature and God, which is eternal and infinite. It's not as though anything has a job and it completes that job and then it's done. Nothing, nothing exists like that. Everything participates in the endless cycle and these endless modifications of the various attributes that we've discussed of God's, um, I guess, of God, like extension, like thought. Everything is of that. And everything participates in that eternally and infinitive, infinitely, in infinitely. Words are hard. Words are hard. 
So perfection and imperfection are only modes of thought that compares other individuals of the same species or genus. So we use this idea, this split, this differentiation between perfection and imperfection as just like a way to help us understand the world through our eyes and minds as humans. They don't actually refer to the real nature or properties of things in themselves. So nothing for Spinoza is therefore perfect, but are only seen as such in the ways that it affects us. So for example, like I'm taking this from Foucault, where in Foucault's first lecture at the Collège de France, he writes about the ways, or he gave a lecture about the way that Aristotle used the fact that humans can derive pleasure from things as justification for them being rational beings. Uh, so in that case, the fact that we pursue things, there are things out there that we can pursue beyond just our immediate satisfaction of bodily needs is a sign of there being something more. That is, they are serving this purpose for Aristotle in this way, in the ways that these possible things, these enjoyments affect us. And Spinoza is making that very clear. Anytime that we say that something has an end, it's not about that thing in itself. It is about the way that it has affected us. So to this, if anyone is interested, Nietzsche might say, well, okay, this is, a, this is just the philosopher revealing uh, their true identity. They are not actually interested in the pursuit of knowledge. They are instead interested in imposing their view of the world on the world and molding that world to their, uh, to their will. That is the will to power. So the same here can be said of good and evil. So by good, Spinoza or the good, Spinoza refers to that which allows us to approach the model of human nature we set before us. So we create the conditions for which to determine or through which to determine or by which to determine what is good versus what is evil. But again, as we would know from Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil, these are categories that are created by humans not to refer to any eternal moral ideas, but instead to impose certain ideas about what is good and what is evil that often go down, uh, you know, they, they will reflect the interests of the people in power and everything like that. So Spinoza is, wants us to think about these terms critically, wants us not to just adopt them naively or uncritically, but he's going to use them. And the way that he uses them is, as we've been discussing, action versus inaction in the previous parts. So as you would recall for Spinoza, what is good is that which permits us to act. What is bad is that which dispermits us, disallows us to act, which might very well be, you know, Nietzsche, you know, it's hard, it's hard to read these thinkers after understanding Nietzsche, because then you say, oh, well, is Spinoza really giving us anything transcendental here, like, like a truth that transcends all material, um, I guess, differentiation, all material um, happenstance? Or is Spinoza just imposing his idea about what is true because it makes sense to him? Even though we can certainly unpack why this vision or this view of acting is seen as good and what actually constitutes acting. I'm not, I'm not going to get into these criticisms here, but I, just food for thought. All right, now into our definitions as he likes to do. So by the good or by good, he, he means that which is useful to us 
really what is per- what permits us to act. Evil is what hinders us from having what is good. Contingent things are whose essence or those things whose essence isn't coextensive with existence. That is, they are dependent on another thing. That is, they are contingent. They are not, uh, they don't exist like fully alone in themselves. They are dependent on another thing. A possible thing may or may not exist as non-contingent or, or, or contingent. So these are things that really they may exist and they may not exist. There, there is a potential there. And by contrary emotions, he means emotions that differ in the ways that they affect us. So some emotions will affect us differently than others. By past and future feeling, he refers to the act of recollecting images or forecasting images, prophesizing things, and how those, uh, like recreating an image or conjuring up an image or creating one for the future, thinking about the future, those things will affect us. Past and future feelings can still affect us, even though they aren't immediately physically, materially present. By appetite, he means an end for the sake we do anything. So this is why we do something. It corresponds with our appetite, not to be confused with desire. So if you remember from the last part, desire is when we are conscious of our appetite, whereas appetite is just something we must do for ourselves without necessarily always being aware of them. Desire is when we are aware and we can fulfill it uh, ourselves and pursue it ourselves. And by virtue and power, he means that virtue is essence of humans insofar as it has the power of affecting certain things which can be understood through the laws of its nature alone. So that is something that affects us in terms of its, uh, the laws of its nature. Or specifically virtue, that is the essence of humans insofar as it has the power of affecting certain things which can be understood through the laws of its nature alone of virtue. Now, before proceeding, I think I want to give a little bit more of an idea about what this part does, what this, I'll just call it a chapter, what this chapter does, chapter four does. So here he's, he's just trying to show why we do not always follow reason. Because if reason is this great thing, it leads to virtue, it leads to us being happy, blah, blah, blah. Why don't we always follow it? So he wants to show why we don't always follow reason and which emotions comply with reason and which do not comply with reason. So in some of the things that he considers is the ways that we seek to preserve our own being. That's primary. Number one, we always seek to preserve our own being. This is our virtue for Spinoza, and we seek it for itself. And in this case, the act of suicide or falling victim to suicide means it impotence of mind overcome by external causes, which we know now this is not, I mean, this this is not something we take seriously now, but at the time to give Spinoza credit, this was quite groundbreaking to be considering suicide um, in, in such, in such a serious way. Whereas, you know, if I don't, I guess I don't know where Christianity was at this time, but didn't, didn't really like suicide. But in any case, This is the overview of what he's going to do in this chapter. Okay, so we've covered our definitions. I gave a little trying to situate you so you know what to expect. Here we have our axiom. So here he says, there is nothing in nature that cannot be surpassed in strength and power 
by some other thing. So, which is an interesting proposition to say that there is nothing in nature that cannot be overcome in strength and power by another thing or a combination of things. Which is, you know, just for me, just in, I just find it an interesting claim because it makes me think, like, to be quite honest, I'm a very simple-minded person. If you listen to these things, I, I don't use big words, and I, I in fact, I actively avoid them. Um, but I think this stuff is, like, is there anything that's, can a volcano, I guess a volcano could be overcome by all of the water in the oceans, in which case, what can overcome all the water in the oceans? I don't know. Uh, all the magma in the middle of the earth, but I don't know. What can then overcome that? I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, it's a good point. So propositions. <laughs> Number one, no disposition brought about by a false idea is removed or cured or remedied by introducing truth just because that thing is true. So for example, for a long time, people thought that the sun was really tiny or that the sun revolved around the earth. And just because people were saying the truth to counter that didn't mean people were going to believe it. So what he is saying here is that there is no positive quality or positive idea possessed by a false idea that is removed by the presence of what is true just because it's true. There needs to be more there to actually affect a kind of change in the person's mentality. Which I think is actually super useful because my, my own work is in conspiracy theories and a lot of the time truth doesn't do much in actually helping someone not think about a conspiracy theory or believe in a conspiracy theory. But that's for another conversation. Proposition two, we suffer because we are a part of nature that can't be conceived alone. That is to say that we suffer when something occurs in us for which we are only a par partial cause, and we are always only partial in nature. We are never total. We are only one part of a giant, infinite expanse, and it is from this, you know, we naturally suffer to some extent. And, you know, I think that we can hear some resonances of what would eventually be, be Kierkegaard here, but, um, yeah. Proposition three. Humans are limited in capacity to preserve themselves because external forces are always more powerful. So think about that axiom where there is nothing that can't be overcome on, in nature. Something can be always overcome by something else. And so in this case, we are always going to be, you know, the, the, the we are always going to be threatened by external forces to some extent because they are much stronger than us if they uh, join together. No, no one human is stronger than all other humans. They will never be. So peop, uh, proposition four, people are always part of nature and are therefore always subject to these external forces. You can't exist outside of it. So if humans were in complete control of their preservation, we would never die, which is a, it's an absurd idea. So we are always being acted upon. So like aging being a product of exposure to air, the effect of gravity on us, you know, we are, all these things play a part. These are external forces that work upon us and that, that affect us. Number five, passions intensify out of our control and they can do so beyond our power to restrain them. So our passions, 
our emotions can often get away from us and they can command us like in cases of depression of anxiety of trauma where we can't just ignore it or just overcome them uh and this language of overcoming is this is clearly outdated but in this case he's describing the ways in which we can become beholden to our emotions where we can't seem to get out in what we believe to be ourselves seems to be what is being restrained where our idea about what it means to be normal what it means to think right what it means to act right is being inhibited by this external force number six because of a passion's intensity as ex as it is externally caused we might struggle to overcome it without our own with our own power so that's obvious we we will struggle to overcome it number seven an emotion can only be removed with opposed and stronger emotion so the opposing emotion can be a bodily modification because all emotions affect body and vice versa so it's like if you're feeling sad maybe sometimes eating a, a food you really like will make you feel better and that's just a bodily thing you aren't talking to a therapist engaging in like i don't know an emotional recovery you're doing like a physical thing or in my case i anxiety is something that i often have exercise is something that helps me a lot with it for for myself that's not that this isn't i don't know anything about this this doesn't this isn't for anyone else but for myself i find that that helps which i think that i think that he's on to something here even if it's you know it's all this language about overcoming and stronger emotions and, and stuff is a little sticky territory, but in any case. Number eight, knowledge of good or evil is only an awareness of our feeling of joy or sorrow towards something. So joy, or what is good, is that which increases the power of action. Whereas that which is evil, as we've said before, is that which inhibits our power of action. So that which is good, our knowledge of that which is good is knowledge of that which permits action. Our knowledge of that which is evil is knowledge of that which inhibits geez, our capacity for action. Number nine, if we imagine a cause of an emotion to be present, we will feel that emotion stronger than if it was apart from us, if it was far away. So even, even in the case of imagining something, like if I imagine the cause of an emotion, like being scared of something, if I'm scared of spiders, if I imagine a spider, I, you know, it's going to elicit some response in me. It's going to freak me out more so than if I wasn't thinking about a spider or a spider was far away from me. So here we see that for Spinoza, this connection of the mind and the body, again, kind of a criticism or moving beyond uh Descartes work where Descartes wanted to maintain a fairly strong distinction between the mind and the body with an asterisk pointing like there's so much more to it than that but in very simple terms because even our imagination can produce a bodily response in us like a can uh instill or evoke the fight flight freeze response depending on the emotion that we have number 10 a future object will affect us more as it approaches a past object l less so as time goes on so 
that's easy enough. A future, like, as I know, if, if there's an event coming up I'm anxious about, as I get closer to that event, I will get more anxious. As that, after the event, the more time that passes, the less anxious I will feel. Like, time is a, time is the factor here. 11. We have stronger emotions towards necessary things than possible, contingent, or unnecessary things. Seems obvious enough. A possible thing doesn't necessarily exist. It's just speculation. A contingent thing is just like, I don't know, this may be a silly example. Maybe this is like too, um, I guess not serious enough of an example to capture what Spinoza is after, but let's say I was in a car accident, which is maybe a traumatic thing to bring up, but if I, one time, just, <laughs> I was just kind of clipped by a car on my bike, and a contingent thing in that case would be like the tire, where a tire doesn't, doesn't really scare me, but it's the whole, like, the entirety of the vehicle itself, of which the tire is only a contingent thing, that freaks me out. And an, a necessary thing is just a thing that is not relevant in the, in the situation. But I would like to say that in this discussion of possible contingent or unnecessary things, in my research, the it hasn't been, it's not a settled science in exactly what Spinoza means here. So if anyone has like a better example than the car tire one, please comment it. Number 12, an emotion towards a possible object is greater than a contingent object because a possible object can be unnecessary a necessary, not unnecessary, a necessary object. Whereas we know that a contingent object is always just contingent. There's nothing about a contingent object that is it only includes uh, nothing that posits its, its existence, like its essence, and so won't inspire much in us. Number 13, an emotion towards a non-existent contingent object is less than a past object because a past object actually existed, whereas a non-existent contingent object doesn't exist. It's just part of the, we just conjure it up in our minds. So, we, okay, with this, like, it reveals the extent to which that our bodily experience of things will inform our emotional states. So if a thing never exists, it doesn't really affect us all that much because it just exists in our minds. And we can kind of like, when we conjure up an idea in our minds, we only do so when the thing can be like, I guess restrained to some extent. At least this is how I gather this. Whether or not it's true in the real world, I don't think so. I think people conjure up horrors in their minds and that and it haunts them. Um, even if those horrors are based on their real life experiences, but in any case, his point is that a contingent object is going to have less of effect of an effect than a past object because the past object was, you know, it affected you. Number 14, an emotion can't be restrained by knowledge of good or evil. Only an emotion can combat another emotion. So number, number 15, desire from knowledge of good and evil can be affected by desires from emotions that agitate us. So agitating emotions can even be stronger. So agitating emotions can be even stronger than emotions towards good and evil or ideas about good and evil. Number 16. Desire from knowledge of good and evil in the future 
can be easily overcome by desire of appealing things in the present, of, a, of things that appeal to us in the present. Sorry if my audio just changed all of a sudden, by the way. I've um, I changed the settings so that it's probably less loud and a little bit more clear. Okay, number 17. Knowledge of good and evil of contingent things is less than the desire of present things. So that is to say that uh, true knowledge can be rerouted or distracted by lust, for example, which is something that he views as being a distraction, taking us away from the good, which permits our capacity for action, where he thinks that something like lust becomes an interest only in and of itself, where it doesn't actually point us to doing things more creatively or interestingly in our lives. It's something, and we become obsessed with it in itself. And we, it, it restrains us because of that. Number 18, desire from joy is greater than the desire from sorrow. So in this case, like the desire we get from joy to pursue things that give us joy is greater than the desire to avoid things that give us sorrow. We want, we pursue things that make us happy. We don't pursue things that will not make us sad. That'd be a, that would be a sad way to live if you just live primarily to reduce the things that are going to make your life worse. And, you know, this is, if it's only people really with privilege would be able to do this. There are so many people who spend their lives just trying to avoid evil and sadness in their lives. So now we're going to consider what reason wants here, or he's going to turn now to reason. So for him, reason is an altruistic practice for Spinoza. Reason doesn't happen in isolation. Reason always strives to improve the lives of yourself, but also others around you. And if in your town, in your country, like in, in the world, it is about making humanity better. It's about lifting people up, not putting them down. So in his case, the most reasonable thing is that we should seek common good for all because we are all one with the nature. That is, the most reasonable person is not the person who just thinks for themselves. The most reasonable person understands that reason is contingent upon everyone around them also participating in reason so that they can grow together within this common experience in nature, not just for one person's individual interest, which, which really dominates certainly in North America today. So now we're on to proposition number 19, where now we're gonna consider nature more fully. So number 19, our nature strives for what is good and avoids what is evil. And this is, our, this is really of our essence for Spinoza. Number 20, the more each person looks after themselves, the more virtuous they are. The less they look after themselves, the more impotent they are. So he says that this is because weakness is not in our nature. It comes about externally. We always, we, you know, as humans, we are curious. We strive for new things. We strive for new knowledge, new experiences. If we aren't, then there's something going wrong for Spinoza. 21. To be happy, to act, and to live is to desire to exist, which is obvious enough to me. I mean, it's, a, it's really, I think it's a really beautiful point. 
Number 22, no virtue prior to desire to live and self-preserve. That is, there's the, this is our virtue. To self-preserve and to live is our primary first virtue. There's nothing before that. 23, action in conformity with virtue only possible from adequate ideas, not inadequate ones. So we must have a scientific basis. I'm just using the term science because science has been responsible for revealing many truths that we didn't know about, like that the earth revolves around the sun and that the, the solar system is moving through space and all of this interesting stuff, how nature works, properties of nature. But it's not, I think it's important to say, I, you know, I had this experience once with uh, this philosophy guy. And he was talking about like how, it's quite a few years ago, talking about how he was reading this article about how these plant systems and trees communicate with one another and how he thought that was so cool that we've discovered this and like what this would mean for uh, living a more ethical life in relation to the natural world. And I was like, that's, man, like it's all you're doing right now is saying that you've just been ignoring all indigenous people and indigenous knowledges in the Canadian context that I'm in forever because they, they know this this and they've been saying this but you needed to wait for science to come in and tell you the truth so when I say science it's not reserved for that alone it is just one part of a of a broader movement in human history to uncover the truths of the world okay number 24 Acting according to virtue is to preserve our being. So that is to act according to virtue is to act according to our nature and to keep us going as humans. 25. No one preserves themselves for anyone or anything else. They do it for themselves. They aren't, they aren't doing it for anything else. That would be, it'd be a scary thought, you know, that you just live for the sake of something else. Uh, you know, you have to find reason to live for yourself. For Spinoza. 26. All exercises of reason are efforts to understand, which is, uh, which is what is profitable to the mind. We are always trying to pursue new knowledge. That is, our mind is essence of reason to understand things, to understand the world, to improve our knowledge. 27. For the mind, that which is good will permit understanding. That is, of course, evil will inhibit, will stop us from understanding the world. It will keep us in a state of arrested development. We won't be able to grow. Like if we just thought that the uh, sun revolved around the earth, we, we can't do anything with that. How do you get, you know, put a rocket ship on the moon if you think that the sun revolves around the earth? It will limit what we can actually do in the world, in the universe, in nature, if we don't pursue knowledge if we don't expand our horizons of understanding 28 the highest good of the mind is knowledge of god that is the highest virtue is to know god is absolutely infinite and necessary for everything 29 nothing whose nature differs from our own can affect our power of acting nor can it be seen as good or evil so to be, be of a different attribute makes it inconceivable to us. If, if it was totally different, it's, it, we can't make sense of it and it can't affect us. Like a dog whistle, for example, is just a very 
simple example to illustrate this, it is outside of our possible perceptive capacity. We cannot perceive it, so it can't affect us. Number 30. Nothing can be evil on account of what it has in common with us. So it must be, have possessed contrary qualities. If something was exactly like us, it wouldn't be evil. Unless it was like an uncanny valley, like, you know, Blade Runner replicant type thing. <laughs> but then is it really exactly like us? No. Anyways, so a thing has to possess contrary qualities, but is still recognizable and understandable, has different interests that negatively affect us. 31. If an object agrees with our nature, it is necessarily good. So there are degrees of agreement with us. Something might agree with our nature more than others, and the closer, the more it agrees with us, the more we will like that thing. Number 32. Because people have passions, they don't agree in nature. So things can only agree in terms of power of acting. So we don't find agreement on the basis of our enjoyment of certain things, like our passions or like our emotions. We instead find a common ground in terms of what is going to keep us going, what is going to permit us to grow as humans. And we find this common ground in that way. And this is a common ground we can find among all humans, hopefully, not those people who want to keep us stagnant and not grow as humans in terms of our accruing more knowledge, people who want people not to learn, people not to develop themselves, don't want change, who just dispermit action. Spinoza would see them as being uh, contrary to our, to our, to ourselves. Thirty-three people differ because of passions, and individuals always are always changing too. This reveals the extent of external factors and how they affect us. Number thirty-four passions can make people hate. That is contrary to one another. So, you know, someone might have different passions than me, and maybe for Spinoza, that will apparently cause us to hate one another. 35. Only when people conform to reason do they agree in nature, whereas it is passions that set them apart. If people disagree, it is because of nonsense. Spinoza just wants us to find this common ground, this drive to always be expanding our knowledge of nature of god which is should be our our what unites us in thought and in being humans 36 virtue's highest good is common to all and equal for everyone that is because this virtue aligns with human essence itself so as long as we're existing in accordance with it we are existing in accordance with everybody else 37 People desire same good for others as themselves, and this desire increases the greater their knowledge of God. So we will love something the more others love it, which is why reason is something that demands cooperation. It doesn't happen in isolation. So here he then goes on a tangent about how we see ideas of, of justice and sin emerge with the state which he advocates for, like he advocates for the state, he's a big state guy, uh, in order to universalize the pursuit of reason and to punish people if they don't properly submit to this 
path of reason which here again the nietzsche the nietzsche alarm bells are going off like okay what is this reason exactly whose interest does this reason serve who is benefiting is this just spinoza's will to power being exercised here instead of his will to knowledge i mean you tell me 38 that which affects the body or a body that produces many effects is good because it permits action so the more <laughs> movement you get the more that you affect things without hindering them you know that you affect things to help them grow the better that thing is 39 that which maintains proportions of all parts of the body and their motion and rest is good what throws these proportions off on the contrary is bad so the body will be destroyed if it is messed with too much if the proportions like if our body is attacked too much its coordination with the mind is thrown off and then that's that's very bad number 40 what allows people to live in harmony is good and for him this is the state really the state is what allows this to happen 41 joy is good sorrow evil easy enough 42 all right and here we're going to consider the emotions again like last time 42 cheerfulness good melancholia bad seems okay these are obvious 43 pleasure might be evil and pain may be good so here he's really you know he's thinking about that kind of like what does nietzsche call? i don't know why i'm obsessed with nietzsche today nietzsche calls them the um the priest the um the ascetic priest the priest that lives like the life of just like pure self-punishment so i think that spinoza finds a lot of value in that nietzsche doesn't because they, they these people are saying no to life instead of embracing life instead of embracing their own will uh, they're just like oh god tells me to do this so i'm gonna whip myself so what spinoza is saying here is that pleasure may be evil even though pleasure for aristotle pleasure was a sign of uh, an ultimate good in the world pleasure might be evil like in the case of lust if it distracts us and then we become hyper obsessed with that and it doesn't allow us to do other things whereas pain might be good if it makes us grow like i don't know like with exercise you know exercise is probably a good thing for us uh you know to be moving i think that that's probably good uh and, and it hurts at times but it's it's good it might help us sleep better maybe it'll make it easier for us to move around help help mobility a little bit which is um i think these things are good 44 love and desire may be excessive obvious enough if it goes too far then that's bad 45 hatred can never be good so hatred is always bad except like he there are times in this text when it seems like oh spinoza like hates some people like there are people that he definitely hates but anyways 46 those guided by reason respond to hate with love so love is as an opposite emotion can combat hate as he suggested earlier how emotions opposite emotions can combat one another 47 hope and fear aren't good in themselves nor are they bad in themselves 48 overestimation and contempt are always evil because they are for him opposed to reason overestimation makes overestimated person proud so we think too highly 
of ourselves if we overestimate ourselves. Uh, 50. I, I skipped naming a couple, numbering a couple there. Sorry about that. So back 50. I said like 46. And now, now we're on 50, but I think that you could follow along. For the reasonable person, pity is in itself bad. So pity can be good if it encourages us to lift someone else out of misery. Someone who's been acted upon with external forces that have made them miserable. Pity can be good if it encourages us to lift to help somebody in need. Pity in itself, though, is bad because it signals a discontent with God's plan and with nature. So like Spinoza says, like no one should really envy anyone else. Like they should really just, if God, you know, wanted someone to be rich and someone to be poor, that's just the way things are. And we have to just accept it for Spinoza. 51. Favor agrees with and may arise from reason. So favor is love towards those who do good to others. 52. Self-satisfaction from reason is highest uh, is the highest form, the highest form of self-satisfaction if it comes from reason. Sorry. 53. Humility is not a virtue and doesn't come from reason. Humility is sorrow from one's own weakness. So I, you know, I've done something wrong or I feel like I'm weak and I feel sad because of it. 54. Repentance isn't a virtue. It is a sign of impotence. So there are moments that it can be good when you repent for your wrongdoing, but it's a sign that you've done something wrong and you feel bad about yourself. 55. Great pride is a great ignorance of oneself. So same with a great despondency for Spinoza. We're And 56, a great pride or despondency signals great impotence of mind. So these people are way too wrapped up in themselves and they it inhibits their capacity for action because they're like, I'm great, I've made it, I don't need to improve anymore. And they exist in a state of arrested development as a result. Uh, 57, proud people love flattery and they hate noble-minded people because they want people around them who are always going to inflate their egos. They don't want people around them who are self-confident, who have high self-esteem, who aren't going to be flatterers. So proud people surround themselves with people who are not proud to, you know, inflate their, their pride. 58. Self-exaltation is not opposed to reason and may come from it. You might, you know, you might be a reasonable person. You might have self-satisfaction, as he said earlier, and you might exalt yourself as a result, as long as it doesn't go too far into becoming too much like pride. 59. All actions that are motivated by an emotion our mind is passive about may also be motivated by reason. That is because all emotions that encourage us to act are desire. Because we're we're acting because we know what we want and we're going for it. 60. Desire from joy or sorrow that is focused to only a part of the body isn't profitable to our total human essence or existence. Like a massage might be good for our backs if we get a back massage, but it's not exactly improving us as a human. 61. A desire from reason can never be in excess because it is from our essence. 
so desire from reason he's like go for it go nuts like just that that's great 62 the mind's conception of an object is the same if it is conceived in the past present or future and that is in the mind it is confirmed as necessary as well whether it's conceived as past present or future 63 those who act by fear to avoid evil are not led by reason so these people have no sense of virtue and good they just avoid what is what is bad 64 knowledge of evil is inadequate knowledge we want to know instead what is good we want knowledge of the good for spinoza it is sorrow in his words really it's is sorrow which restrains action so if human had only adequate ideas it would form no notion of evil it would always be looking to what is proper what is right not what is bad which would limit us if we just uh focused on what is bad number 65 of two goods uh, it, like if we're presented with two different goods we follow the greater good of two evils the lesser evil obvious enough 66 reason guides us to greater future good over present lesser good to lesser present evil then later greater evil so you know if there's a future good you know we'll pursue that instead of a lesser good right now you know like the experiment the marshmallow experiment like you know if there's kids in a room and they can have one marshmallow now or in five minutes they could have two marshmallows and you see how many kids can wait you know and get two marshmallows which i silly it's a silly experiment but anyways 67 a free person is concerned with life not death they are not guided by fear but instead by a desire to act 68 if someone was born free they wouldn't understand evil so we are because we are because we are born in sin sounds like kierkegaard 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 so we are subject to passions and so we can be led astray we we exist in a world where there are passions there are distractions uh drives that we don't necessarily have control of and that limits us whereas if we were totally free in accordance with nature's will will and god's will we wouldn't have anything that would distract us but we aren't we are just one instance of the entirety of god or of nature so we uh we are subject to all of those other instances we are not the totality itself that'll come perhaps after death be one with the whole okay 69 virtue of free person is both ability to avoid and overcome danger so they choose flight with same virtue as we might choose uh, to fight instead 70 free people avoid favors of the ignorant that is the free person unites people to themselves through friendship not debt from favors they will avoid the favors of the ignorant they will instead uh, they will instead try to unite themselves with friends through you know a common interest not not because of a hierarchy 71 only the free are very grateful to one another that is only the free are useful to one another as friends 72 free person only acts honorably not deceitfully seems obvious enough 73 the free person more free in a state with common laws than if alone so freedom is maximized with the cooperation of other free people and that's it that's our propositions so in our appendix he writes or in his appendix he writes 
We should strive to be guided by reason. This isn't his words, but the summary. We should really strive to be guided by reason, not emotions that hinder our capacity for action. This is best done among others and not alone. So now in his words, he says that the care of the poor is incumbent on the whole of society and concerns only the general profit of that society. That is, it is in our interest to help people. Now, to finish off, he says that because the body is comprised of many parts, we should eat lots of different foods to optimize our health because we have to appease all these different parts. And here we see an influence maybe on Deleuze, Guattari, but, you know, if anyone knows about them. And yeah, that'll wrap up part four. Uh, tell me what you think. Do you buy it? Do you disagree with me? Do you not disagree with me? I'd love to hear any of your thoughts. And yeah, we'll conclude this text next week with part five and then be done with Spinoza. I'm eager to get back to covering text where it's not just lists. Like a, the whole book is just lists, like one, two, like all the way up to like 72. It's very dry to present that kind of stuff uh, to be faithful to the text. I mean, I could have narrativized the whole thing. I could have presented it like a story, but I feel like that would have taken away from what Spinoza was trying to do. So yeah, I'm eager to read other things now. But yeah, let me know what you think. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, follow me on things, uh, reach out if you want. And yeah, hope you are all happy and healthy, embracing your capacity for action and reason, and we'll catch you next time. Take care.